be seated. I've already had a lot of comments on my glasses this morning. If you were in adult D6, that's an inside joke. If you weren't in adult D6, you're, you're not in that joke. So, all right, let's begin. This morning's message is titled, The Dangers of Comfort. And I wasn't sure about the title, but that's what we've got now, so that's it. All right, so I want to start out just to mention, I, I heard many years ago on a talk radio show, um, the, the host of this show, it was a three-hour show, had an entire hour where all he did was have people call in that had won the lottery. And almost to the person, all of their stories ended not good. And people all of a sudden get something they didn't earn or they didn't work towards, um, they, don't, they either don't know how to do it, anything with it because they're not trained or they lose uh, context with reality and what it takes to make that kind of money. Um, so winning the lottery or inheriting something that you didn't earn can be, there's a tendency possibly that someone can have not a great situation come out of that. If someone's received comfort, uh, like a comfortable living or income or other blessings that they didn't earn, um, they can forget the cost, what, did it, what it cost them, or they could be unaware of what it, it even took in the first place to get that money or that whatever they received as a gift. Now, as we're looking back at Deuteronomy 6, uh, Paul's peop- or God's people were about to receive a great inheritance. Uh, one generation saw what God did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and one generation would see themselves delivered into the promised land. Yet, even those generations who saw it would soon forget the mighty acts of God in their deliverance. How much more would future generations be in danger of not understanding or appreciating God's deliverance, God's salvation? So, just as a very quick recap from last few weeks, or actually this chapter we've been in for quite a while, uh, so... We're in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Moses had just recalled the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. He's reminded the people uh, both of God's powerful works in Egypt and in the wilderness. He's reminded the people also of their own lack of faith and their lack of obedience, their rebellion against God. And in our passage today, which is really all of Deuteronomy 6, as we finally finish this chapter, we've been in for several weeks, we're going to see that Moses has a reason to repeat certain themes over and over again. There's a reason for it. The theme of do not forget. The theme of loving God by keeping his commandments. The theme of teaching them to his children. Which, by the way, we haven't seen the end of in Deuteronomy yet. The theme of having an educational system, so to speak, to do this. And this system is to involve every activity of life, every moment of their existence, So let's look at Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll get into it. Now, this is the commandment, the rules and the the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, 
that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in, the, in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The focus this morning is the last half roughly of the chapter, which is starting at verses 10. And uh, I'm going to go back to that for a moment. In verses 10 and 11, it says, When the Lord your God brings you, out, uh, brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and cities full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. Now, I mentioned at the start the, the potential dangers in an unearned windfall, an inheritance or something like that. Now, that's not to say inheritance is bad. Certainly, God gave an inheritance to Israel. That wasn't a bad thing. But the potential is always there 
for people to get comfortable and forget what it took to get them what they have. And this can happen in many areas of life. In fact, it happens all the time. A young man with a drive to succeed in his preferred career will put time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears into becoming a success. And after establishing a certain amount of success, maybe he decides it's time to enjoy some of the fruits of this labor. He buys some comfort items. He maybe takes some time off. He gets married and settles down. And now there's a few paths at this point. One is to continue working with the same intensity and drive. The success may continue, but the wife and family may get none of his time. Perhaps he set up a structure so the success would continue, but he himself has less of the actual work because he hired a good manager and employees to carry on what he started. And in some cases, the young man gets too comfortable in the early success. And as an older adult, never again experiences the same fruit of his labors as those earlier days. And there's other paths that are taken. There are also some that are on the opposite path. They start out with no direction, no drive, but it's developed as they mature. Some of those people end up very successful and satisfied. Now Moses is telling the people this. You are about to enter the promised land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This promised land has been a long time coming. You are the generation that shall inherit it. You are going to enter cities you did not build. You are going to live in houses that you did not build, full of good things that you did not obtain for yourselves. You will have cistern from wa cistern, water from cisterns you didn't dig. And you will have vi vineyards and olive trees to harvest from that you did not plant or cultivate. This is the future for these people. It's an enormous blessing God is giving them. Basically walking into a complete world all set, ready to go. What an amazing gift. And yet, can you see the danger in it? I know someone who sells helicopters for a living. He sells both to government and private companies and also private individuals sometimes. In Palm Beach County, there are a number of people who live in houses they did not build, did not pay for. They eat food that they have no real concept of what it takes to get, and they buy luxury goods. My friend, the helicopter salesman, told me he sells helicopters to some of these people. There are literally adults in their 50s or older in this county who have no concept of what it takes to earn a living. They inherited a trust fund or an estate, and not only do they have no concept of how they ended up with all that money, in some cases, they actually despise the very family they grew up in that provided all their wealth. Some of these people have never raked a leaf in their life. They've never run a vacuum cleaner or washed dishes or done laundry. They really have no clue about what their lifestyle costs. And it may seem ironic to us, but many of those who build a life of luxury or have a life of luxury built for them by someone else's hard work, they tend to be the ones that promote socialism. They have no concept of what it takes to build wealth. They just think it's easy, and so it should be easy to provide everyone with everything. Ironically, they never volunteer to give up their own luxuries to make it happen, right? The promised land, though, was going to be an inheritance, and the danger was certainly there. Just like trust fund billionaires who can buy a multi-million dollar helicopter just because the Israelites could lack appreciation for what they had received. 
And because of that potential, they're told in verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't take the gift you've been given and then forget who provided it. He brought you out of Egypt. He gave you all this land and property. He literally is taking them from slavery to living like kings. So in verse 13, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now, fear God. Now, this is not the sense of a terrifying fear of him, though we should have a bit of that. This is the type of fear that is reverence towards him, a sense of respectful awe. You shall serve him and not go after other gods. There's another danger of being in a comfortable situation. You can start to forget the God who has given you salvation and blessing. Just as children often do when they leave the family home for the first time, they can forget all the morals and standards they grew up on. And this is especially true if they haven't been trained to remember those things. And just as the father who may leave the defiant child out of the will, God will not stand idly by while people he has given this great favor to wander off into myths and worshiping other gods. And now the people are given a historic example of the kind of rebellion that they are to avoid. Verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And what is this referring to? Let's go and look at the, the text for this. It's Exodus 17, starting at verse 2. Shortly after being delivered in powerful and mighty ways, the people of God said, they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your staff, in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Don't do this again, Moses is warning. Don't question whether the Lord's with you or whether he can provide. Trust him rather than test him. Instead, in verse 17, it says, you shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Keep the commands of God. If you want your life to go as well as possible, obey the commands of God. 
Now, we all know this experientially. When we violate God's law, our lives get more difficult, don't they? It's a lesson most of us have kept learning. God has offered the promised land. They, they need to possess it, though. And then he says, You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. And finally, Moses predicts the questions that many children may ask in verse 20. When your son comes to you, uh, asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, this son is asking this question. He wants to know, why do you keep obeying these rules and enforcing these rules? Why do we have to follow this God? And this is why we must teach our children the history of our own faith. We can share with them not only the times it went well, but we can share with them our own failures and contrast this with God's faithfulness. We tend to not want to talk about our own mistakes, right? We don't want our children to think less of us, so how dare we admit we made a mistake? Yet look at what Moses does throughout. Not only does he remind them of God's faithfulness, he reminds them of their own faithlessness. And he does again and again. Why? Because when we contrast the goodness of God to our own rebellious nature, when we see him being faithful when we were unfaithful, it shows him to be the true God. It glorifies him to celebrate when we celebrate his faithfulness. And it brings us the humility we need to honor him, to submit to him, to bow our knee before him. And the answer the child should receive when they ask why we keep these testimonies and statutes and rules, the answer is this. God delivered us from having to serve an evil slave master, and since he delivered us, we now serve him. Verse 21, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It is the right thing to do. What is righteousness? The state of being in the right. He brought us out of terrible oppression and slavery and showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous. He brought us out of there, Moses is saying, and brought us to this land. And he did all this and commanded us to keep these things, these rules, these commandments, to keep the statutes, to fear him. Why? For our good always, that he might preserve us alive. Now, we could use this simply as a historic lesson. I bet some would like to just leave it there, right? After all, if we just leave it right there, 
and I end this sermon right now, we could look at those Israelites, how they messed up by complaining in the wilderness, how many times they walked away from their God and worshipped idols, and at times they committed some abominable sins. Wouldn't we just like to leave it there? Perhaps. But what would we really learn? What good does it do to just learn history and then repeat the mistakes of those who have gone before? Why would we want to miss the opportunity to apply this lesson to ourselves? Is there any application to us? Oh, you better believe it. The application of this passage for the believer is this. We have an unearned salvation and can quickly forget the cross and the cost of that salvation. The Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh, but we were slaves to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 6, Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But we were rescued from this slavery. And now we're slaves to righteousness. Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, Paul writes. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more unlawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things... Is death. Remember what Moses said was the came from keeping God's laws, life. The end of the things that are against his laws are death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh my, how I sometimes get dismayed at that verse ripped out of its context because someone's presenting the Romans road because it takes away a little bit of its power, in my opinion, if you don't have the context. And I hope you understand a little bit better now that when he says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, he's saying you were a slave to sin, but you can be a slave to righteousness instead. One brings death and one brings life. Now, this is good news. But it shows us how much we really do have to learn from what Moses is telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6. They were given commands to live by, so are we. Our commands come from our Lord Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is one of many places where we find that Jesus gives us commands, not only commands that are like the commands the Israelites received, but even more strict in how he has said we have to carry them out. For the Israelites, as for us, the keeping of those commands will make things go well with us. The Israelites were commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus affirms this command as the greatest command. 
so that his followers should also strive to keep it. The Israelites were told to teach these things to their children, and so in the New Testament, we see the charge to know the truth of the gospel, and for several reasons. Among those reasons is that we can, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Another reason is so that we were, are not swayed by false teachers. Another reason is that we receive a crown of glory. And we also should teach these things by constant repetition. We should always have the truths of Scripture before us to hear them verbally, to read them, and to see them demonstrated in the lives of other believers. And this is why it's so important to be a part of a local body of believers. We need each other. Our kids need to see us and others living out the faith as an example to them. The Israelites were told to remember their deliverance from slavery so they would not forsake the God who delivered them. We also are cautioned to not neglect our great salvation in Hebrews 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. As I was studying this passage for preaching this week and also studying the passage for D6 this week, I saw a strong correlation to what we are seeing here. I know some Christians would like to say something like this and maybe have said something like this. Oh, you should stick mostly with the New Testament. You know, because that's where we learn the gospel and how to live it out. Yet we cannot ignore the clear lessons we can take away from a study like we're doing right now in Deuteronomy. Let's look at the second part of our passage from D6 this morning and see if there are not some clear parallels to what we see in Deuteronomy. First Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Does that sound like Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 15, where it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Next in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What does that have to do with Deuteronomy 6? Well, look at verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him. Verse 15 of Philippians, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Deuteronomy 6.14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life so that on the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Deuteronomy 6.16, 
24 and 25, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And Philippians 2, 17 and 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, Paul writes. Likewise, you shall also be glad and rejoice with me. This one correlates with chapter 7, which we'll get to soon. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is the deliverer. He was the deliverer for the Israelites from slavery and demanded their allegiance. He wanted his people to live in his commands in community. That means they could hold each other accountable and with humility and respect for God and one another. And so we as Christians are called likewise to humility and service to God and one another as well. And I'm going to read this again, even though I read it earlier. Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May it be said of each of us individually and as God's people here at Oasis Church that we live out this in a way that the world around us can know we are the people of God. Remember this. Human nature is to think less of God in times of comfort. We, don't just, we just don't think about him as much. Tell me if I'm wrong. But when things are going really well, just like those Israelites, we tend to forget our God. The other thing I want you to remember is this. They didn't earn the promised land. We have an unearned salvation, and we can quickly forget the cross and the cost. Last week, I closed with a reading from Revelation. Today, I want to close with this reminder that our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we will also be raised like him. 
And knowing this is our inheritance, let us not neglect this great salvation, but choose to live for him. Here's Romans 6, starting at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's good news. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. We're not under law, but under grace. This does not mean we can sin anytime we want, as Paul goes on to vehemently deny in the next part of that. But rather, it's a reminder that our salvation is an inheritance. We did nothing to earn it. It's a gift from God, so we cannot boast. Therefore, we live in the kingdom of God now, but not as arrogant sons and daughters who just reap the benefits of the work of our Savior, but as those who want more than anything to honor the Savior with our lives, knowing that while we are saved, we are also being saved, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We do it with this hope, this promise that we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let us strive to live this life well for the glory of our King and Lord and Savior. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning.